Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 44th episode of 2020. Well, it finally happened. After months of trying to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill across the goal line, the bill passed on the House late on Friday night with a final vote of 228 to 206. You know, our efforts to gain bipartisan support paid off as 13 Republicans supported the bill, which was definitely needed. This is a historic moment for our country and an opportunity for industry to ensure digital equity for all as we accelerate into a connected tech future and all Americans will be able to participate. You know, yesterday the White House held a press conference with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. The secretary outlined that 45 billion of the 65 billion for broadband will be administered by NTIA. Each state will receive $100 million and the remaining funds will be distributed to the states based on need to connect unserved and underserved Americans. This funding will not only connect every American with fiber, and the secretary did specifically call out fiber, warm my heart. This bill provides funding for affordability and adoption. This is a great moment for our country and for fiber and the fiber broadband industry. As we discuss, once the president signs this bill into law, the clock will start ticking at NTIA as they will have six months to start issuing the NOPO, the Notice of Funding Opportunity. In addition, the FCC needs to get the broadband mapping in place. For the Fiber Broadband Association, we will be moving from advocacy mode to execution mode as we work with NTIA and the states to accelerate the availability of funding for fiber projects. In addition, governors and elected officials from states across the nation have been reaching out to us to find out how to roll out the Fiber Broadband Association's fiber, uh, fiber Optics Technician Workforce Development Program in their state. So we have a lot to do in a very short time, and this is the time for the fiber industry to step up. Today at noon Eastern time, I'll be on Drew Clark's Broadband Breakfast to speak in more detail about the broadband infrastructure bill and next steps. So speaking of leaders in the industry that have stepped up, the Fiber Broadband Association's board and I had a wonderful opportunity to speak with Steve Foshi, the CEO of Tom Bigby Electric in Hamilton, Alabama. Tom Bigby is the recipient of the Dr. Charles Chaos Awards for Community Broadband that we awarded on November 4th. Steve is a colorful and amazing community leader, and he has really set the standard and paved the way for rural electric co-ops to deliver fiber broadband to unserved and underserved Americans. So congratulations to Steve and the team at Tom Bigby. Let's move this morning's Fiber for Breakfast session. Today's topic is how public-private partnerships can accelerate efforts to close the digital divide. And good morning, everyone, and welcome. I'm Gary Bolton, the President and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. Last week, we met with Dave Williams of Ponca City, who shared with us how 100% fiber optic network access is taking Ponca City by storm. You know, that was a great session, 
And I love hearing from community leaders such as Dave and the story about how Ponca City is leveraging fiber broadband for economic diversity. Today, we're gonna to be discussing how public-private partnerships can accelerate efforts to close the digital divide with Jack Litch, the COO of Education Superhighway. So Jack Lynch is the, C, the Chief Operating Officer of the Education Superhighway, a nonprofit focused on closing the digital divide in America's most unconnected communities. Between 2012 and 2020, uh, Education Superhighway helped connect 43 million, 30, 43 million K-12 students to minimum speeds necessary for digital learning and secured commitments from governors in all 50 states to upgrade their schools to the 21st century. Jack also serves as an advisor to Project Waves, a nonprofit ISP focused on serving unconnected residents in Baltimore. He began his career as a hardware engineer at Cisco and was driven to make a career change by a strong belief in the power of technology to create equitable opportunities for everyone. You know, I know the feeling, Jack. And Jack has, it was an electrical engineer, has had a double E degree from USC. So welcome, Jack. It's great to have you here. I'm looking forward to your talk. For our audience, Thanks. I know you guys are gonna have a ton of questions on this, so please type in your questions as we go, and we'll get to the Q&A at the end of the presentation. With that, I'll turn it over to Jack. Thanks so much, Gary. Uh, I'm truly honored to be the first guest on this show after the passage of the historic infrastructure bill. I wish you could, I could say we planned that. Uh, and I'm excited to use this opportunity to speak to the Fiber Broadband Association community about the current state of our nation's digital divide and some of the ways that the fiber providers uh, can take advantage of all of these new federal programs to partner with both the public sector and nonprofits like Education Superhighway to help close the digital divide. And we can go to the next slide. Um, so Gary touched on a bit of this, but I wanted to provide some, some additional background on Education Superhighway. Uh, we were originally founded with the mission to close the digital divide in America's classrooms. And when we started our work uh, back in 2012, less than 10% of the K-12 students in the nation had access to high-speed broadband in their classrooms. There were nearly 23,000 schools without fiber connectivity, and schools were paying way too much for internet access. Fast forward to 2020 and over 99% of the K-12 students in the country could access high-speed broadband in their classrooms. Over 99% of schools were connected to scalable internet infrastructure, primarily being fiber, and the cost of internet access for schools dropped by over 90%. But most important is the impact this technology had on teaching and learning in the classroom. So 94% of schools reported in 2019 that digital learning was happening in their classrooms and 96% of school leaders believed that digital learning was having a positive impact on teaching and learning. And those stats are taken before the pandemic. So I imagine just with all the technology use and dependence uh, since then, the, the, the numbers might be even higher. Uh, and, and you know, none of this progress would have been possible without the close partnership and collaborations we helped to facilitate between uh, industry fiber providers in the private sector and schools across the country. Uh, so as a result of all this progress, Education Superhighway had actually planned to close up shop in the summer of 2020. Uh, we had always said that once our mission was achieved, we would put ourselves out of business. And that's exactly what we were preparing to do in March of 2020. But then the pandemic hit and we were forced to change our plans. We can go to the next slide now. Um, so at the onset of the pandemic, 
there were 55 million K-12 students that were forced to make the transition from their classrooms to the kitchen table and continue their educations online. And if you're a parent right now listening to this show, you know firsthand how challenging this transition was for everyone involved. The remote learning saga has been incredibly taxing on tens of millions of households in the United States over the past year and a half. Parents had to become part-time teachers and tutors on top of the regular stress that the pandemic brought on. But for households with internet access, the good news is that learning was able to continue. It was far from an ideal mode of learning, but thanks to the incredible progress that our nation and the broadband community has made over the last few decades, millions of students have been able to continue their education during the pandemic. But that wasn't the case for everyone. There were 15 million students that didn't have internet access at home. Some of these students were completely shut out from learning during the pandemic. Others had to take extraordinary measures to log on to school. The picture on this slide went viral last summer. It shows two little girls sitting outside of a Taco Bell in Central California. A couple of Taco Bell staff who you see in the picture uh, saw these two girls sitting outside the restaurant with their laptops and went outside to ask them what they were doing. And the girls told the employees that they came to Taco Bell because it was the only way that they could get on the internet to go to school. So this image really captures the sad reality of how some families in America, as a result of their unconnectedness, are being shut out of basic opportunity. Basic opportunities like education, remote work, healthcare, job training, and access to the social safety net. I mean, if you take a moment to think about the last time you were caught without internet, even if it was just for a few hours, you start to get a sense of how difficult life can be in the 21st century when you don't have a connection, which is unfortunately the reality every single day for 28.2 million households in the United States. Like I said, 28.2 million households without high-speed internet, representing a total of 75 million Americans. This problem is referred to as the digital divide, and more and more people have been talking about it since the pandemic laid bare the challenges that Americans without access to digital tools face in today's society. What may be surprising, though, is how much of this digital divide is due to a lack of infrastructure versus a lack of affordability and adoption of available broadband options. Uh, nearly two-thirds of the digital divide consists of the 18.1 million households that have high-speed broadband infrastructure in their area but can't afford to connect. Perhaps unsurprisingly, income is the primary driver of this affordability gap. So only 43% of households earning less than $30,000 per year have fixed internet access at home, while access is nearly ubiquitous amongst households earning over $100,000 a year. Uh, and this affordability gap is present in every state. It's present in cities, suburbs, small towns, and even in rural areas. Uh, and it represents the majority of the digital divide in 43 states in our nation. Black and brown families are disproportionately impacted by this problem, so much so that the late Congressman John Lewis called the digital divide the civil rights issue of the 21st century. Uh, a silver lining, though, of the pandemic is that his, it has created a new political will for finally addressing the affordability challenge within the digital divide, with the latest evidence of this being the passage last week of the big infrastructure bill. So the federal government is committing tens of billions of dollars to drive broadband adoption, uh, including the big buckets of funding I've listed on this slide, uh, $42.5 billion in the Broadband Equity Access and Deployment Program that's part of the uh, infrastructure bill and will be administered by the Department of Commerce, Commerce as Gary was mentioning, 
this program will provide states with funds for broadband deployment and digital equity. There's also $17.4 billion in funding from the emergency broadband benefit and, and what, what will eventually become the affordable connectivity program, uh, some of which the, the funding in the emergency broadband benefit has already been deployed. Uh, and this provides monthly subsidies on internet bills for eligible households. Then there's the Coronavirus Capital Projects Fund, which was part of the American Rescue Plan Act passed uh, in the first part of this year that provides $10 billion to the states uh, for the deployment of broadband infrastructure. And finally, what I have listed on this slide is the Digital Equity Act in the uh, infrastructure package that provides another $2.75 billion for efforts that can support broadband adoption. So the big difference between the current round of broadband funding and past efforts is that federal policymakers have put a huge emphasis on affordability and adoption of broadband service, as opposed to solely focusing on expanding infrastructure. So as a result of the work that Education Superhighway took on unexpectedly during the pandemic, and all of this new political will that was really born out of the pandemic to address the nation's digital divide, we decided to abandon our previous plans to sunset the organization and instead have adopted a new 2.0 mission to close the digital divide for the 18 million households that have access to the internet but can't afford it. We're now focused on developing playbooks to address the affordability gap by focusing on places we refer to as America's most unconnected communities, which means over 25% of the households in these areas do not have fixed high-speed broadband at home. Last week was a really big week for us, not only because of the infrastructure bill passing, but also because we publicly announced this new mission and released a national report on the affordability gap. Uh, the report, which you can find on our website, educationsuperhighway.org, and I think we're also gonna put in the chat here, uh, lays out action plans for closing the affordability gap. And just it, as it was the case with K-12 uh, schools and the K-12 school digital divide, we believe that public-private partnerships are the key to closing this gap. So for the next few slides, I'm going to focus on three specific areas where uh, the Fiber Broadband Association, the Fiber Broadband community can play a crucial role in helping us realize this new mission. So the first thing we need to do is get better, more granular data on which households actually make up uh, the affordability gap. This was a major key to our success uh, in Education Superhighway's original mission to close the digital divide for school buildings. Through the FCC's open E-rate data, we were able to determine internet speeds for every single K-12 school in the country. And armed with that information, we could target our interventions to the places where support was needed and we could measure national progress on school connectivity. Uh, the data was so key to everything. And another example is the, the data also showed us what type of technology schools were using. So we could see which ones were on fiber and which ones were on some sort of copper or legacy technology uh, like DSL or we even found a lot of T1. Um, and, you know, I like to say that Education Superhighway, we've, we've been fiber first since 2012 um, and we would have been uh, fiber first before that, but that's when we were founded. So uh, having that data, though, in our original mission, it allowed us to make sure that every school had access to fiber and we could partner with the fiber providers to bring the schools that didn't have it that access. Um, the problem is though that we don't have this kind of data for household connectivity. Everything we have right now is based on surveys and estimates, uh, but that is starting to change. So during the pandemic, we started to hear stories about internet service providers collaborating with school districts to confidentially and securely exchange data on the households that needed to be connected in pursuit of ensuring that every student could continue their education at home. 
inspired by these examples about a year ago, Education Superhighway, in partnership with National Telco Association, some of which you see listed on this slide, uh, launched the K-12 Bridge to Broadband program. And this was a way for school districts and internet service providers to confidentially and securely exchange connectivity information for households with students. So the way it works is schools are able to use this information uh, once they know which of their students don't have an active uh, internet uh, subscription at home, and they purchase residential broadband subscriptions on behalf of those students who are unconnected. Um, or uh, what we're seeing more often right now is, is the school districts then helping families that are uh, part of that unconnected group to enroll in the emergency broadband benefit. So we've got 130 internet service providers whose footprints cover 90% uh, of households nationally that are already participating in this program. Uh, we've already used this data exchange uh, process to provide connectivity statuses for millions of students so that their school districts can drive unconnected families to sign up for the EBB and ISP service. And uh, you can see that one of the associations that is participating in the program is the Fiber Broadband Association. So if you are an internet service provider and you'd also like to participate, uh, the easiest way to get involved is to send me an email. My contact information is going to be at the end of this slide deck that's going to be distributed. Uh, and I'll be sure to get you more information on the program and how to be a part of it. We also have a flyer uh, with some more information for how internet service providers can get involved and what that looks like uh, that'll be available if anyone would like to request it uh, after the webinar. Uh, one of the things we've also learned by studying the digital divide efforts that have been happening around the country is that government subsidies alone won't be enough to get the 44 million Americans who are part of the afford uh, affordability gap online. This is due to the fact that adoption of these types of subsidies and plans has always faced significant challenges. So prior to the pandemic, uh, as evidence of this, less than a quarter of the households who were eligible were subscribing to the FCC's Lifeline program, which provides monthly cost support for qualifying families. Uh, and, and right now, only 17% of the eligible households uh, across the country have adopted the emergency broadband benefit. So why is this? Why don't households adopt broadband even when it becomes affordable or in many cases free? Uh, well, we've found that it boils down to three primary types of barriers, and those are listed here on the slide, awareness, trust, and enrollment. Awareness includes simply not knowing that these subsidy programs even exist. Uh, so most of us viewing or listening to this program, we all eat, sleep, and breathe broadband, just like the name of the show, Fiber for Breakfast. Um, but you know, think about your average low-income American walking down the street you probably wouldn't expect them to have heard of the emergency broadband benefit. And even if they did, they probably wouldn't know the first step in signing up and, and activating that benefit. The good news is that uh, there have been some surveys done that have shown that two thirds of eligible households say that they are likely to sign up for the emergency broadband benefit once they've been made aware of its existence. Um, so, so we need to do a better job of getting awareness out to the families that are eligible for, the, for these subsidies. Uh, the trust barrier uh, includes things like skepticism about the actual costs that are going to be incurred and access to personal information. Uh, another big part of trust and a key to overcoming the barrier is the level of trust a potential low-income customer has with the messenger who's, who's telling them about these opportunities. Many of the individuals who make up the digital divide come from groups who are historically distrustful of uh, two big uh, types of folks, government and corporate America. And those happen to be the two central players in a lot of these affordable broadband programs. So trusted messengers from the community can really go a long ways in overcoming skepticism. And we've seen this strategy work in places like Las Vegas, where 
the local school district use teachers and, and um, familiar staff members for the families to outreach to their school district families and encourage them to enroll in a school-sponsored broadband plan. And then finally, enrollment barriers. Uh, they include challenging sign-up processes on both the internet service provider side as well as on the government subsidy side. Long hold times on the phone are often cited as a primary barrier. You might have to spend an hour or more of your day on hold to get enrolled. Uh, and there are also language barriers. For example, in Baltimore, where I live right now, a large portion of the unconnected residents only speak Spanish. So if you don't have bilingual communication options, these folks don't have much of a hope of getting through the process. Um, so, so one of the things that, that providers can do to really help out here is, I'll go back to the Las Vegas example, um, doing things like, like streamlining the enrollment and making it easier for families to get uh, signed up. So in Las Vegas, uh, there was a broadband adoption drive that I mentioned that, that resulted in 18,000 families who were previously unconnected signing up for new broadband service. And one of the big keys to unlocking this success is that the local internet service provider agreed to let the school district employees who were outreaching to the families directly enroll those families into their plan instead of requiring the family member to go through an entirely separate signup process, make a separate phone call uh, and figure it out on their own. So Education Superhighway, one of the things we're doing uh, to address all this is we're, we're really trying to evangelize local institutions and community-based organizations around the country to raise awareness and build trust in the emergency broadband benefit. Um, but the internet providers also have an important role to play. Uh, and that includes offering plans for qualifying families that deliver at a minimum 100 megabits down by 20 megabits up service, which should be at least 100, 100 symmetrical. And I'd imagine in most cases for fiber providers, which is even better. Um, and, and being able to offer plans like this that, that can fit, if possible, within the ACPs, the Affordable Connectivity Programs, $30 per month budget, so that there are no out-of-pocket costs for low-income families who need this service. And they, can, uh, they, they really need it to be as easy as possible uh, to sign up. So this is this is really my last slide, and uh, it's it's an area we're really excited about um, for for closing the digital divide. Um, so the stat that I've got here, up to a quarter of the digital divide in the most unconnected communities in America, consists of households that live in low-income serving apartment buildings. So if we can figure out a way to bring affordable connectivity to these buildings, it'll be a big chance to take this this big bite out of the problem. And the strategy we're really excited about is something we call free apartment Wi-Fi. So the basic idea is to deploy Wi-Fi throughout the hallways and common areas that is free for tenants to use, similar to the network you would find in virtually every hotel today. Um, so for low-income serving apartment buildings, this type of solution makes a ton of sense. It makes sense for the tenants because they're getting access to a, a critical resource without having to navigate all the adoption barriers with sign-up that I talked about on the last slide. All they need is the network SSID and they can connect. It also makes sense for the building owners because it's an amenity that they can use to help attract and retain their tenants. And there's public funding, all that uh, federal funding that, that we've been talking about that can cover many of the installation costs and other costs required to establish these networks. And it makes sense for internet service providers and fiber builders because it provides an opportunity for enterprise solutions in places where uh, business historically has been challenging due to churn, low take rates, and high acquisition costs. So at Education Superhighway, we've started to partner with communities around the country to help them deploy uh, projects for apartment buildings that serve low-income residents. And we're particularly excited in exploring partnerships with fiber providers who can deliver enterprise-level circuits or business-class circuits to the buildings that we're targeting as 
backhaul for these Wi-Fi networks that are going to be installed in the common areas. Uh, okay, we can go to the next slide, but that's the end of my presentation. I just want to say thank you again for giving me your time and thank you for all of the work that you all do. Uh, the Fiber Broadband Association community has been and will continue to be a force in addressing this digital divide to make sure that we have no homes left online. And uh, I thank you all for the work that's already happening to this end. And with that, Gary, I'm happy to take any questions. Thanks, Jack. Um, I love uh, hearing what you're doing. It's just great work. You know, I always think of the three A's, the access, affordability, and adoption. And to me, it really has to go in a, a very specific sequence. Because you know we throw money at affordability when people are paying $200 or $500 for a really bad satellite or some kind of wireless data cap service, and you know having $50 or $30 really doesn't make a dent in that. So if you don't have fiber that you can be able to deliver, you know gigabit services at that 70 bucks or $60 rate, or get 100 meg for you know close to that $50 rate, it's pretty hard for that subsidy. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, the EBV has kind of struggled to only have 17% adoption, which is better than I thought. I, last I had heard, it was like 11%. But I think you know, it's one of the questions that came from our audience is, um, how do you think the, the adoption rate will be impacted um, as the subsidy moves from the, you know, um, ARPA from 50 bucks down to um, $30 for the new infrastructure act? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's plans are going to have to um, potentially come down in cost is is one part of that answer. Um, and if, you know, where possible, like I said, trying to make sure that there's plans for eligible families, for low-income families that that can fit within that uh, subsidy, within that thirty-dollar subsidy or close to it, is is going to be key. Um, but there's also some changes that are happening that are that are going to really help. So uh, one f factor uh, with the emergency broadband benefit was that. Uh, provider like service plans were only eligible if they had been offered uh, December 1st, um, 2020, I believe. And, uh, you know, they had to be specifically plans that, that address low income Americans. Well, with the affordable connectivity program, any plans eligible, um, you can use that subsidy uh, anywhere. So hopefully that's something that'll create more opportunities. We still want to see uh, the prices go down when we're, we're thinking about the families that, that we know need this. Uh, they need to have affordable options. Um, but but there's some more flexibility on the provider side as well in terms of, of what can be eligible. So um, that's one thing. And the other thing is, like I mentioned, we're going to have to do a lot better at raising awareness. Uh, I think you know we believe that awareness was really the key barrier, the, the probably the number one barrier to, to people signing up so far. And so there's a lot of effort in things like the Digital Equity Act that was part of the infrastructure package to support uh, awareness efforts. There's there's some provisions in the Affordable Connectivity Program. Um, language that that uh, speaks to that, but but as a nation, and, and this is going to be a big focus on education superhighway. We're going to partner with local communities, um, with community-based organizations, with community institutions to get the word out to as many families that are eligible for these benefits as possible. And we're also going to help them sign up. We're we're almost like a free. Salesforce for the, the the benefit as well as for the internet plans that can meet the needs of these families and what we need the providers to do is just to, to provide those options. You know, I was on the Teach for America board for about six years and you know it's really hard to think of context because I always assume that you know kids and subsidized living kids would just go home every night and I was shocked to find out that they didn't have a regular home, you know, because if 
they they might have a single parent that's working multiple jobs, and so they ended up a different place every night. So it's very difficult to <laughs> say, hey, we're going to put you know fiber to this home when you don't know where that kid's going to be sleeping any given night. And so I I think that's uh, a challenge. Um, one question that came in is, is it possible that some in poverty don't have a device that can benefit from broadband? Uh, absolutely, it's possible. And and uh, we know there's you know our our mission is really focused on uh, the access piece, the internet access piece. We're we're the, we're the internet people, but we know that hand in hand with that is is also having a, a device that, uh, as the question implies, can connect. And um, again, in the emergency broadband benefit, and and also in the affordable connectivity program, there's still a device benefit as well. Um, yep. to, to offer kind of connected devices. And so uh, that's going to be very valuable to make sure that once you have internet, you actually have a way to use the internet. Um, so so absolutely, that's important. Yeah, and you know, just, you don't even have to think about, um, you know, uh, subsidized living areas and things like that. But I look, you know, I've been meeting with um, Northwest Louisiana, there's entire parishes where no one participates on broadband. It's just not part of the culture. You know, so there's a lot, you know, different scenarios that we have to really you know, get dig down, dig deep into. Uh, one of the questions, and this got to be the last question since we're out of time, will these fiber broadband connections be able to cross through state lines? What about if the company doesn't currently have a license in border states? Um, the example here, we are in northern uh, Wisconsin and the upper peninsula border. So have you run into that where you're just border operators? Yep. That's a good question. I'm afraid I'm not an expert in that area. So I'd, I'd have to unfortunately defer that to someone who knows a little more about the policies out there. But, um, you know, we what we do believe at Education Superhighway is we believe in competition and we believe in uh, every provider that wants to try to serve an area having an opportunity to do that. So uh, we, we certainly encourage uh, more competition and more options for the people that need options. Well, what I'm certainly seeing now kind of started about mid time of our conference as public-private partnerships really bubbling up and we're seeing providers across the country, you know, working with communities to be able to, to help, you know, provide those partnerships with all kinds of different models. So I think uh, the environment's right. Um, so Jack, thanks so much for sharing what you're doing. Um, just applaud your work and uh, we look forward to partnering with you guys further. Uh, next week, our topic's gonna be why the middle mile matters with Reed Fischler of Hurricane Electric. So we got about a billion dollars in infrastructure bill for middle mile. We've seen uh, uh, states like California investing in middle mile. So why does that matter? You don't wanna miss that. So thanks for joining us today and we look forward to getting back together next Wednesday. Thanks everyone.